Heavenly Father, thank you for the uh, the privilege and the opportunity to share your word with your people today. We pray that your Holy Spirit will come and give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. In Christ's name, for his glory, amen. You can be seated. Last several weeks we have been um, looking at what the Apostle Paul says about the resurrection of the body and the reason why we can have hope for the resurrection. Christianity is not a matter of blind faith. There are reasons to believe. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we saw, we went through it for three weeks, that the Apostle Paul is giving us reasons to believe in this hope of the resurrection of the body. But as we said, uh, the resurrection comes at the end of time. It comes when uh, Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. As Paul says at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, um, the last trumpet, the trumpet that will herald the return of Jesus will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. So the resurrection comes at the end of history. And then that raises the question, of course, well, what happens to a Christian who dies before Christ comes again, before the resurrection? And this was an issue that the early church wrestled with because they lived with great expectation that Christ would come in their lifetime. And then they started to see their loved ones and their fellow uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord pass away and die. And so the question surfaced, where are they now? Christ has not returned. Where are those who, had died, who, who, who have died in Christ now? And this is a question, of course, not just for uh, the early church. It's a question for us as we see uh, loved ones die, as we see family members die, uh, people in the church that we love, like this week that happened with our brother Cliff Curris, the oldest member of our church um, this week died in the Lord. And, and it raises this question, um, what happens after a Christian dies? And the Apostle Paul answers that questions, uh, question for us in our epistle reading today. Second Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to look there, turn in your bulletin or take a look in your Bible to Second Corinthians chapter 5. And he says at verse 8, and here's the answer to the question, where do Christians go after they die? Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body, that's speaking about death, and at home with the Lord. To be away from the body for the believer, to die, is to be at home with the Lord. The believer who dies in Christ goes to be with Christ. This is the teaching that we find in the New Testament. And uh, Paul says it elsewhere in his writings. He says it in uh, Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, he's at this section wrestling with um, two sort of paths forward that he can see for himself. One is that he would die, that he would die fairly soon. Another is that the Lord would keep him here 
for a while longer to carry on the fruitful work that God has given him to do. And in Philippians chapter 1, he wrestles with this. He says uh, at verse 21, uh, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why is it to gain? Why is to die to gain? He says, well, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's able, if, he, if the Lord preserves his life, he's going to be able to carry on with the work that God has given him to do. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two, the two choices here, the two paths ahead. My desire, listen to this, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I'm ready, Paul says, to go. I'm ready to die. Because when I die, when I depart, I will be with Christ. So that's the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And this is in harmony with Jesus' teaching. Remember Jesus on the cross, Luke 23 the thief on the cross, the penitent thief. As they were dying, the penitent thief admitted that he was a sinner. He admitted that he was guilty. And he looked to Christ. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to the penitent thief? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, in heaven. He was assuring this repentant thief that because he had admitted his wrongdoing and because he was looking to him, he was putting his trust in Christ as best as he understood Christ. Jesus assures him, when you die, you will be with me. In another place in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling the parable of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man's, uh, we're not given the name of the rich man, but we're given the name of the poor man, and that is Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. This is a story that Jesus is telling, a parable. And you might remember this parable. There was the rich man who lived a life of luxury, who dined sumptuously every evening. And at his gate, it says, there was a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. This poor man was, was hungry, was hurting, was sick. But the rich man ignored him. Here was the poor man at the gates of this man's house. But as far as this rich man was concerned, he didn't exist at all. But when the rich man died, Jesus says in this parable, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham, the father of all those who put their faith in God's promises, Gentile or Jew. Abraham, the father of faith. And Jesus says in this parable, this poor man was gathered to the people of God, gathered to Abraham's bosom, to Abraham's side. But the rich man who showed by his action 
or we could say his inaction, showed that he did not have faith in God, did not fear God, and did not love his neighbor. The rich man who died, Jesus said, was sent to Hades, a place of torment. But the poor man who died was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, to the place where the people of God dwell with God. And so, from the words of Jesus and the writings of the Apostle Paul, we can say that the Christian position is that when the believer dies, he's with the Lord. And this is known as the intermediate state. The, the, the state that is between death and resurrection. What happens? That's the intermediate state in the teaching of the New Testament is that the believer who dies goes to be in the presence of God. The intermediate state. Now, this rules out several ideas, a number of ideas that some people have about what happens at death. There are some people who have taught in Christian history that when the soul dies, or when a person dies, the soul goes to sleep. This is called soul sleep. And uh, our seven Adventist friends, Seventh-day Adventist friends, teach this. They say that... Uh, they presume that the soul cannot exist apart from the body. So that when the body dies, as they put it, a man will rest in the tomb until the resurrection morning. So this is one position that people have had, this idea of soul sleep. But it's not what we find in the New Testament. To be absent from the body is not to be asleep. It is to be present with the Lord. And when the New Testament uses the expression of sleep to refer to those who've died, that's exactly what they're referring to, somebody who's died physically. So, historically, in the mainstream Protestant tradition, rejects the idea of soul sleep. There's another uh, idea that some people have that is, is, uh, is... ruled out by this idea of the intermediate state, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is that people will be given some sort of second chance after death. That after death, maybe there'll be this probation period. And people who've not received Christ might be given a second chance. And, and, and there's very little in the New Testament that you could point to to argue such a position. But people will go to um, one of uh, the passages in First Peter, I believe it is, First Peter chapter 3, where it talks about when Jesus, um, is it not First Peter or is it Second Peter? Uh, where he talks about where Jesus, when he died, he went to preach to the spirits that were in prison. But in that text, uh, the text says nothing about what Jesus said to the spirits that were in prison. It only says that he went and proclaimed to the prisoners there, the spirits that were in prison. It could have been a message of victory over death. And so that's about the only text that somebody could point to in the New Testament to try to make a case that after death, people will be given perhaps a second chance, that there will be this probation Sort of period. It also rules out this teaching of the intermediate state 
that there's something called reincarnation. This is a popular view in our day today. That uh, after you die, if you haven't lived a life good enough, you'll have a second chance. You'll be reincarnated in a, in a second sort of manifestation of your life. And then you've got to eventually work your way up until you can get off this wheel that just goes round and round, the wheel of suffering, and finally attain nirvana. It's an Eastern religious idea that has made its way into the popular culture in America. Maybe people think that's what happens when you die. Reincarnation, a second chance. It's not taught, however, in the New Testament. This is not the Christian teaching. Now, what we find in the New Testament in the preaching of Jesus and his apostles, is a sense of urgency about making a decision to respond to Christ here and now. Here and now. Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's no sense that, oh, you can put this off to later. Maybe you'll have a second chance after you die. Um, the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he got up to preach at the end of his message, it says that people were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do in order to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And he had this sense of urgency. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Here in our text today, the Apostle Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10. That is what is in store for us. It's in store for all of us. Whether we die before the Lord returns or we're here when he comes again as the judge of the living and the dead. Ahead for all of us, on our itinerary, in our planner, we may not know it's there, but it's there. The judgment seat of Christ. And Paul says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Because what we do in the body, what we do with our bodies, with our actions, reveals what's in our heart. Have we given our heart, have we given our life to God? Do we put our faith and trust in Him? And the fruit of that faith is what we do in the body. That will be the evidence of our relationship with God and have, have we received the grace that he offers us in Jesus Christ. And so, the New Testament has a sense of finality. There's an urgency there. Judgment is on the way for every human being. The judgment of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And, 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 and so, brothers and sisters, as Christians, if we believe this, this should give us a sense of urgency ourselves to pray for those who do not know Christ, to share the gospel of Christ, to support missions, to support people who are going out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't do it from a position of arrogance or condescension towards other people. If we believe that there is a judgment coming for the world and those who do not know Christ or haven't put their faith in Christ 
will be subject to the judgment of God apart from the mercy of God, then um, we ought to have something of the tenderness of Christ towards such people. Not arrogant, not boastful, but like Christ, who as he talked about the judgment that was going to befall Jerusalem, did it with tears, did it with sorrow. And may our heart have that kind of compassion towards the lost. I need to pray for a softer heart towards people who don't know Christ. Especially in a culture where we as believers sense the growing distance between us and non-believers. And we can feel like we're embattled. We're not battling against them. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our position towards those who have not come to salvation, Jesus Christ, needs to be one of compassion and mercy and this sense of urgency. We've been saved by the grace of God. We've been throwing a lifeline. We didn't do anything to deserve that, and we want to offer that to others. But this idea that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord means that there's no intermediate period. There's no probationary period. And and it also rules out strict materialism. Strict materialism, the idea that we're nothing more than matter. That we're just a collection of random atoms that happen to come together. And so that when the body dies and the brain dies, we die. That's the strict materialist point of view. There's nothing more to us than matter. And so when the body dies and the brain dies, we die. Now, um, this is a whole area of philosophical debate. Philosophers ask this question, where does consciousness come from? Where does thinking come from? How can you get thought and consciousness from matter? How can you get thought and consciousness from matter? Just material existence. Where does that come from? And so philosophers have this big debate, which I'm not, uh, I'm not versed enough in the debate to say anything intelligent about it, <laughs> other than to recognize it is a subject of debate. And and I've read that one person described in trying to understand these different positions an analogy that I found somewhat helpful. He said maybe uh, when it comes to consciousness and thinking and the relationship between thought and the brain, we can think of it something like the relationship between light and a prism. Light and a prism. It's not that the, the, the... Prism creates the light. They're two distinct things. But as the light passes through the prism, it shapes the light. It has an effect on the light. And so this thinker was saying in an analogous way, this is what thought is in relationship to the brain, perhaps. The brain doesn't produce thought or consciousness, but it surely shapes thought and consciousness, that there's a relationship, but there's also a distinction like light in a prison. Maybe 
you find that helpful. Well, we can set aside the philosophers if we want as Christians because our thinking about these things ultimately is dependent on what the Word of God teaches and God in His Word teaches that we are a composite of matter and spirit of soul and body. We are a composite of soul and body. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul that we have this hope to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet, Paul does not say this intermediate state between our death and resurrection is the complete state. It's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is the resurrection of the body. Paul understands, of course, that God created the body. That the body is part of God's good creation. And yes, it's fallen because we live in a sinful world and we are sinners. But God is going to redeem his creation and that includes the body. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 talks about groaning and longing for the heavenly dwelling that is to come. And I take that to mean the resurrected body. And so you want to look there at what he says at the beginning of our chapter. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, the resurrected body. He compares our physical body now to a tent. And Paul was a maker of tents. So you can imagine him meditating on this analogy as he worked with his hands to fashion tents and other things. Ah, this is kind of like our physical existence here. A tent is temporary. It's nice to have, but you don't want to live in it. Take it from a guy who goes camping every summer with his six children. We have two large tents. They're a pain to set up and they're a pain to take down. (laughs) They're temporary. They provide temporary shelter. But the benefit of going camping every year in such a tent is that you really appreciate your home when you come back. The tent is temporary. You're grateful for this body. But it doesn't last forever. But what does last forever is the body that God is preparing for his people. The resurrected body. And and, and so Paul says that we're in this position now of groaning, of longing for that. He doesn't want to be found naked. And I take that to mean he doesn't want to live in this disembodied sort of existence. He doesn't want to live apart from the resurrected body. That's what he's ultimately looking forward to. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so the ultimate hope for the believer is the resurrection of the body. But in the meantime, we can trust that when we die, we will be with the Lord. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of different ideas, I should say, speculation about what this intermediate state will be like. Some people say it's just going to be a disembodied kind of existence. 
Other people speculate that maybe there will be some kind of physical reality to it. We can't go beyond what Scripture says. I've always found comfort in the little poem, my knowledge of that life is small. The future life, this intermediate state. This was sung at the funeral of our rector, Emeritus, Father Paul. My knowledge of that life is small. My faith is sometimes dim. It is enough to know that Christ is all and I will be with him. It's enough to know that, to have that comfort. And so I want to ask you this morning a couple of questions in application. Is this hope alive in you today? This hope that after this life, I will go to be with Christ. And I will be safe with him. Paul says that in verse 5, God has prepared us for this very thing. The groaning that we experience now through our suffering, friends, is part of that preparation. The brokenness that we see in the world today is part of that preparation. When we see wars, as we go through times of disease and destruction like we have gone through now, the appropriate response, at least at one level, is to groan. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This suffering, this death, this injustice, this violence. And that God uses in our lives to say to us, this is not all there is. I'm preparing something better for my people. I'm working through this suffering to bring you to eventually a place where there will be no suffering. And to remind you of that hope to come. He says that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee of this. This hope that is to come. The life of the resurrection. God has given us a down payment. That's what that word means. A guarantee. When you go to buy a house or a car, they say, okay, you've got to put some money down. We want to make sure that you're invested in this, that you're serious about purchasing this thing. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit of God for the believer is that guarantee. God has, has as he says in Romans 5, poured his love into the hearts of the believer. So that when you experience the love of God for yourself, you can know that this is a love that's not going to let you go even at death. This is a love that transcends even death itself. Nothing, Paul says, Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God. That is an experienced reality for the Christian. The Holy Spirit is a deposit, a guarantee. Do you have that hope living within you today? And we need to grow in this hope. We need to cultivate this hope because we live in a world that does the very opposite 
of what Paul says we ought to do. Verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We live in a world that walks by sight, not by faith. And all around us, we're bombarded with messages that say, your hope is in things you can see. Your hope is in this life. Aim for the best life in the here and now. He who dies with the most toys wins. And Paul says, and Jesus says, no, there's something beyond this life that is better. Walk by faith, not by sight. Cultivate this life of faith. We're getting ready to enter in the season of Lent. It's a good time to ask yourself, how can I renew? How can I seek the face of God so that this hope will grow and live within me? That I'll be a person who can grow in walking by faith, not by sight. This hope that when we die, we'll be with the Lord also gives us courage in the here and now. Paul says it. We're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. This is not, this teaching does not mean we Escape from our responsibilities in this life. It doesn't mean that we ignore the things that need to be done in this life and ignore those who need help and ignore what God has called us to do in this life. Not at all. It gives us courage to do what God has called us to do because we know no matter what happens in this life, we will be with the Lord. We need this courage today. We need this courage today as we look and we see what's happening in the world around us. We need to live with the courage like the Apostle Paul had. We need to pray that God will strengthen us in this so that we can do what he's called us to do. And finally, briefly, this this truth to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord sustains us in suffering. It sustains us in our suffering. As Paul says earlier, we know that this light and momentary affliction, this is 2 Corinthians 4, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so the Christian who is going through suffering, whether that's physical, mental, even spiritual suffering, can say to himself, herself, this is not the end. There's a glory to come. In our gospel reading, the disciples saw the glory of Christ. That sustained them as they sought to follow him. One day we will see the glory of Christ. That hope can sustain us in our suffering. I read about a Baptist minister who, as he was Dying, he sent this message to his family and friends. The message was, tell them I'm still in the land of the dying, but I'll still soon be in the land of the living. Tell them I'm in the land of the dying. Soon I'll be in the land of the living. That is this hope that I'm talking about. Amen. Let's pray.
Gracious God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the hope that you give us and pray that you would strengthen us in this hope as we face difficulty and suffering in our life. We thank you for the message of the Apostle Paul and the witness of the Apostle Paul and all the apostles and saints that have gone before us, even those in our own life, God, that we've seen go through very difficult things with hope and faith. That's a witness to the work of the Spirit in their life. And we pray that we would grow in that as well. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.